I'm excited to preach today. Last week we were in our main message series on the life of Jesus and we heard Jesus talk about the coming rapture of the church, the time in the future when Jesus is going to come and gather all those who belong to him, all those who believe in him. Collectively they are called the church. We are part of the church. And he's going to remove his church from the earth before pouring out his judgment on the earth. And the pouring out of his judgment is recorded in Revelation chapter six through 19. The good news is if you belong to Jesus, his plan is to remove you from the earth before that time comes. And here's part of what Jesus told his disciples it would be like on the earth in the time period leading up to the rapture. He says, this is what you need to watch for. I'll read it to you from Luke 17 last week. He said, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. He's talking about Jesus coming back. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus says, guys, this coming rapture, when I come for my church, there are some signs you can watch for to let you know that we're getting close. We're getting close. The idea that uh, some like to say is, you know, when you see Christmas decorations in Costco, you know it's almost Thanksgiving. That's the idea here. And he tells us about some signs that we're going to see that are only gonna fully develop after the rapture. We'll be gone, but we'll see the writing on the wall leading up to these things. And so the point that Jesus makes is that when he comes for his church and millions and millions of people disappear from the earth, for most people on the earth, it's going to be just another day, a day like any other. They're not going to think there's anything strange going on. I mentioned this last week, and then even since last week, the attack in Nice happened in France. And if you're honest, when you saw it, you weren't shocked, were you? It was really just, here's the next one. And this is just the new normal. And already to us, it's just another day. Oh, another Muslim extremist terrorist attack? It must be Tuesday. It's already got to that point. And Jesus says, nobody's gonna see this coming. They're gonna think it's just life as normal. But it's worth noting, though, that out of all the examples Jesus could have used, he chooses the days of Lot and the days of Noah. He doesn't say as it was in the days of Jericho or as it was in the days of Pharaoh in Egypt, which are also both sudden judgments of God that destroyed a city, or the plagues of Egypt that rained from the sky. But God doesn't choose those examples. He says the days of Lot and the days of Noah. And for that reason, I, along with many other Bible scholars, hold that there are some deeper truths connected to the days of Lot and the days of Noah. I've taught on those deeper truths as they relate to the days of Lot. You can listen to that message online. So today we're going to look at the days of Noah and what made them distinct from all the other time periods on the earth. What's the deeper meaning here in the text? So let's jump in. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 and let's read verse 1 together. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now if you take the time to read the genealogy that's recorded one chapter earlier in Genesis 5, you'll realize very quickly that people were living a really, really, really long time, like 900 years or more, 
Really wanted to make sure you married the right person in those days. So follow this math with me. If a man has four kids, and I'm sure they had more than that, but if he only has four, and then he lives to see those four kids have four kids of their own, and so forth and so forth. In just five generations, his family will number 96 people. In 10 generations, his family will number 3,070. And in 20 generations, 3,120,000. In 30 generations, you're at 3,220,000,000. So if a generation is 40 years in the Bible, and there are at least 40 generations recorded in Genesis 5, the population on the earth during Noah's day would have conservatively been billions and billions of people. So we need to change perhaps our paradigm of the days of Noah, because sometimes we think there's Noah building the ark and there's a village of people around him and that's it. We're talking billions and billions of people. We've seen the same thing happen in our lifetimes. From the time Noah got off the ark, it took until 1867 for the world to reach the one billion mark again. But it only took from 1867 to 1935, less than 100 years for the population to reach two billion. And from 1935, it took only to 1965 to reach over six billion. We're now over seven billion with 360,000 born every day. To point out an obvious parallel between the days of Noah and our own, make a note of this, there was a population explosion. There's a population explosion. That's a similarity we see. So it came to pass, verse two, that the sons of God, underline sons of God, saw the daughters of men, underline daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now it gets interesting. The phrase sons of God, I put this on your outline, is the Hebrew phrase ben Elohim. And every other time it's used in the Old Testament, every single other time it's used to refer to angels, it appears three times in the book of Job. The phrase daughters of men is the Hebrew phrase benoth adam. It literally means daughters of Adam. Are you picking up that there's an intentional distinction between the sons of God and the daughters of men? So let's start with what the verse is literally saying. Let's just see what does the verse literally say. It literally says angels came to earth and took human wives for themselves. That is what the verse says. And I wanna remind you that the opposite of an angel is not a demon. The opposite of an angel is not a demon. An angel is a type of being. The Bible tells us that one third of the angels allied themselves with Satan when he was Lucifer, the second archangel in heaven. Those angels are now fallen angels, but they are still angels. An angel is a type of being. If you are a human being that lives in one country and moves to another and changes your nationality, you're still a human being. You haven't become a different creature. So angels are a type of being, and these would be fallen angels allied to Satan who've come to earth to do this. And I understand this is an absolute mind trip, but hang with me. Why? And what in the world is going on with this? For some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard this or seen this in your Bibles. Let's keep investigating. Verse three is important because I want us to notice that verse three is in response to verses one and two. 
And the Lord said, my spirit shall not underline strive with man forever, for he is indeed underlined flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So you get the sense that the Lord is seeing what's happening in verses one and two, and he's shaking his head and he's saying they're striving with me. They're forgetting they're not gods. They're merely flesh. And that's important because we're going to see that in the next few verses, mankind will give himself fully to the sins of verses one and two. Mankind will not repent for its sexual activity with fallen angels. It won't isolate and cast out from society those who participated in this. It will instead welcome this activity to such a degree that it will spread throughout the human gene pool. Verse four, underline all of verse four, it's that important. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The word giants means just that in Greek, but in the Hebrew it's the word nephilim, nephilim, which means fallen ones. And the only other time the specific word Nephilim, fallen one, shows up again is in the book of Numbers. Some of you will be familiar with the story. God is going to lead his chosen people, Israel, into a special land known as the promised land. And when they get there, they send 12 spies to check out the land and bring back a report about the kind of military obstacles they're going to face, the resistance they can expect. They come back with the report, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb say, God's with us, we're good, we can do it. But the other 10 come back and say, there are giants in the land and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And the word there, giants, is that word Nephilim. Let's talk anthropology for a second, the study of people throughout history. And let's talk secular anthropology. In secular anthropology, whenever you find a mythology that appears in practically every major ancient culture in the world, cultures that couldn't communicate and never communicated with each other, when you find folklore or mythology that is common among ancient cultures, it's generally assumed by anthropologists that that mythology has its origins in reality, in the truth. The most obvious example I can give to you is that every major ancient culture, the South Sea Islanders, the Chinese, the Inca, the Maya, the American Indians, all of them have a mythology of a great, epic, catastrophic flood. All of them. And so you can safely assume its origins, even though it's mythology, it has origins in the truth, which we would say is the great flood of Genesis 7 and 8. Practically every culture in the world has a mythology of titans, demigods, half man, half gods, offspring resulting from gods coming from the sky and procreating with human woman. You can check it out. Every major culture, cultures that don't communicate with each other, have a mythology of titans. And the Bible is telling us these are them those mighty men of old, men of renown, men who are known throughout the earth. That's who they are, they're the Nephilim. But the explanation it gives for their origins is both fantastic and disturbing. For we're told that these titans were created when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. My goodness, I haven't seen this one in any children's Bible. 
To the best of my knowledge, it's not coming up in the curriculum that we're teaching upstairs. Don't worry about it, it's probably for the best. Hang with me, we're gonna keep unpacking this. And the reason I feel so emboldened to teach about this is because people really are curious about this stuff. I mean, just think about it. You're on the Discovery Channel and they have the commercial. A mysterious prophecy unearthed on a napkin discovered from the 18th century. Does it predict the end of the world? Seven o'clock tonight. We're like, I'm watching that. I am watching that. Yet in the church, we're like, ah, I mean, I don't wanna get into anything weird. And so people go and watch absolute nonsense on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel looking for answers to this stuff when the Bible has some fascinating insights to give us if we will dig into the truth. It was very hard putting this message in the, in the correct order to make sense of everything, so I'm gonna do the best I can. We're gonna explain a little bit while we're here, then we'll keep moving through Genesis 6 and we'll come back and we'll detail the Nephilim a little bit more. The most obvious question still would seem to be why? Why, why would fallen angels do such a thing? Well, let's go back to the very first prophecy in the Bible. I put it on your outlines. The first prophecy is given by God himself in Genesis 3.15, and it's spoken by the Lord to Satan after both Adam and Eve have sinned. So sin and death have entered the world. The Lord addresses Satan and says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The more accurate translation is he shall crush your head. So without getting into the nuances of all this and getting derailed, Satan realizes at that moment, aha, God's plan to save the human race from sin, the sin that has enslaved them under my power, is to send a redeemer. And the redeemer is going to be born from a woman. It's gonna be the seed of the woman. So Satan now knows that is God's plan. And so now he says to himself, okay, how can I thwart the plan of God? How can I sabotage it? And he comes up with a pretty ingenious plan. He says, I'm gonna sabotage God's plan genetically. If I corrupt the whole human gene pool with fallen angel DNA, there will eventually be no fully human beings left and there cannot be a redeemer born that is seed of the woman. So make a note of this. Genesis 6 chronicles Satan's attempt to genetically derail God's plan to send a redeemer. It's Satan's attempt to genetically derail God's plan to send a redeemer. For you see, Nephilim are not human. They're not made in the image of God. Jesus would not ultimately die for Nephilim, they're not part of his plan of salvation. They are pre-damned. They belong to Satan from the moment of conception. And so Satan knows if I can pull this off, God's plan is gonna be destroyed. Well, let's see the result of mankind embracing this wickedness in verse five. It says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Other translations say that the imaginations of his heart were evil continually. So make a note of this. The days of Noah were marked by an obsession with evil and violence. They were marked by an obsession with evil and violence. We know there was violence all over the earth, but the Bible goes deeper in telling us that violence and evil was in their thoughts. It occupied their imaginations all the time. 
And all we need to do is consider our own entertainment choices and what passes as entertainment in our world today. You know, I really noticed the shift in popular TV culture about 15 years ago when the TV show CSI came out. And it marked a major shift in the genre of crime shows because for the first time, the star of the show ceased to be those who were solving the mystery. The star of the show in CSI was the act itself, not the characters, not the solving of the case. The star of the show was the act, the homicide, the vile crime. And you see, it wasn't enough for someone just to be shot and murdered, like it was in Murder, She Wrote when I was a kid growing up. No, people tuned in, we tuned in episode after episode to see a more deviant, a more dark, a more imaginative, a more perverted evil act. Simple murder doesn't cut it. The murder had to be exotic. It had to be excruciating. It had to be torturous. And we'd grab our popcorn and tune in to watch. You see, we don't need a coliseum. We don't need gladiators. We get our fix of violence and murder and horrific death from the comfort of our living room. We consider those ancient Romans to be savages for their bloodlust, but we are no different. I'll just be blunt, even today, man, some of us, like, what are we watching? What are we watching? Tuning in to see, I'm gonna watch a show. Maybe they'll mix in a little rape with the murder. Maybe, you know, they'll drag the murder out over a few days of torture. Can't wait to see what happens in this week's episode. What are you doing? What are you doing? If you're doing that, turn it off. There's nothing redeemable about that at all. It's wicked. And here's the worst excuse I hear from believers. Oh, it doesn't affect me, which is code for my conscience has become so hardened, I'm not even affected by horrific evil anymore. And that's not a problem? That's not a problem? Man, if you're watching that stuff and it doesn't affect you, you need to stop because you're losing your soul. You're losing your conscience. You're losing your ability to empathize with other human beings and to feel grief at the horrific tragedies that occupy the world. You can't lose that. It's part of what it means to be human. Don't lose that part of yourself. Jesus said that evil begins in the human heart and in our thoughts. And we've used entertainment to create a playground for evil where we love to regularly assemble. In verse six it says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. So follow the flow, Bible students. At a minimum, here's what's interesting. We can all agree that God's reasons for flooding the earth are found in the first five verses of Genesis 6. So I want to encourage you, if you really want to dig into this mystery and you want to understand it, we're only talking about five verses. What do these five verses actually say? If you can solve that, then you can solve the reason for the flood. It's not a huge investigation. Verse eight, but Noah found grace, underlying grace in the eyes of the Lord. Thank God for that. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, underlined perfect. Noah walked with God. Now obviously Noah's not literally perfect. How do we know? Because he wasn't Jesus Christ. 
And that's why we think there's something more going on in that word perfect. It's the Hebrew word tamayim, which means without blemish, sound, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. It's a term used in regard to physical defect. In other words, only Noah, his wife, and his sons were genetically uncorrupted. Out of their reverence for the Lord, they had not and had not allowed their family to participate in any type of sexual activity with fallen angels or in connecting themselves in any way to anyone who had. That's how far the extent of Satan's genetic conspiracy had reached. Only Noah and his family were left genetically pure. They were the only ones. Verse 10, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt, underline corrupt before God. And, and then underline the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt, underline corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So three times in those two verses, 11 and 12, the word corrupt comes up. And we always know when the Bible repeats itself, Holy Spirit really wants us to tune in. The Hebrew word there means gone to ruin, decayed, perverted. And I would suggest to you that it was corrupted in an irreversible way genetically. And the result of this corruption was just more evil, more violence. And yet the people aren't looking for an escape. They aren't open to the message of Noah preaching. You know, Noah preached for a hundred years and all they do is mock the only righteous family living among them. So make a note of this. Horrific worldwide violence was the norm. Horrific worldwide violence was the norm. Strange thing, earth is filled with violence and yet according to Jesus, they're buying and selling, giving in marriage, going through life like it's just normal. Does that resonate at all with the current state of our world today? Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for, and then underline, the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, underline in verse 17, I myself, I myself, and bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that's on the earth shall die. And then underline this in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And out of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep alive. You have evidence there, Noah was the original Pokemon master. He collected them all twice. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, and then underline, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. You see, God's plan was to preserve those who loved him. God's plan wasn't to build their character by making them suffer through the flood. 
His plan was to protect them from the flood. We also see that evil can reach a point of no return. And I would suggest that the book of Revelation makes it clear the same thing is gonna happen in the last days. You know, I'm very torn when I see believers wanting to pray for political, moral, and societal revivals. The idea that God can heal our land. And I say that because I don't really see anything about that in the Bible in the last days. Pray for individuals to come and know Jesus. Man, absolutely. But I don't see anything in the Bible where God's plan for the end times is countries turning back to God, governments turning back to God. What seems to happen is that everything on the outside, politics, wars, domestic issues, morality, natural disasters, they they just get worse and worse and worse as we get closer to Jesus' return for his church. Noah's hope was the ark, the means of escape that the Lord had provided. If his hope had been in everyone in the world suddenly turning to the Lord, his hope would have been misplaced. Likewise, the hope of the church is the rapture. That's why Jesus tells us about it. Jesus coming for his church. If our hope is in our country suddenly having a moral reversal, then you're hoping in the wrong thing. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Pray for individuals. Pray for the lost. But don't expect the spiritual direction of our country to change. It's it's not going to. America's not gonna turn back to Jesus either. That's not happening. That's not what's gonna happen. The Bible's pretty clear about that. So what are we supposed to do in these crazy days? Well, follow Noah's example. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. Be led by the Lord and his word. Don't take your cues from the world or from voices in the media. Take your cues from the word of God. It's anchored. It's grounded. It doesn't change. It will keep you sane. It will give you peace. It will keep you productive. It will give you perspective and insight into what's going on in the world. And it will cause you to live in a way that will profit you for eternity. Worry about what he says. Everything else is just noise. It's just noise. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Nephilim because in my opinion, some of the most compelling and helpful evidence comes from what the rest of the Bible tells us about Genesis 6, specifically some of the writers in the New Testament. From what we can put together, the fallen angels who participated in this demonic conspiracy in the days of Noah are imprisoned in a place called Tartarus. It is the lowest, darkest place in Hades, the abode of the dead. It's a torturous place. And in 2 Peter, Peter the apostle writes this. He says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, that word is Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now that's interesting, because it can't be talking about all fallen angels, because not all fallen angels are bound at this time. Many of them are still actively serving Satan. But here Peter makes reference to a very specific group of fallen angels who have been imprisoned by God in the lowest depths of Hades, in this place called Tartarus. As a result of something that happened, Peter even makes it clear, around the time of Noah. 
In 1 Peter, the same guy writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the, and then underline this, spirits in prison, who formerly were, underline, disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited, underline, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. This one's so easy because there's only one group of spirits that was disobedient in the days of Noah. Only one. All you gotta do is read through five verses. Are there two groups? There's only one. The fallen angels who participated in the Nephilim conspiracy. Peter affirms that view in the New Testament. In Jude, we read, and the angels, underline angels, who did not keep their proper domain, underline proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude tells us about angels who didn't stay in the bounds they were supposed to and engaged in behavior that was similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. How was it similar? Well, Jude tells us it was sexual in nature and it involved sexual activity that went against God's design. Very specific. So make a note of this. The days of Noah were marked by rampant sexual immorality. They were marked by rampant sexual immorality. And just to be clear, when we talk about sexual immorality, we're talking about any sexual behavior outside of God's design and God's plan for sex. And my goodness, is that ever true in our culture today? You know, when I was growing up, the guys who wanted to buy pornography wore trench coats and went in the back door of shady stores and hoped nobody saw them. But today, pornography is mainstream. It's joked about in public. It's just assumed that everybody is doing it. I was just at a Ravi Zacharias talk and he shared this statistic that the average amount of time a man who views porn has the same woman on the screen for is one minute because that's the amount of time she can hold his attention for. That's how desensitized the population is, the male population through pornography. A naked woman can only hold his attention for one minute, then he needs a different one. It creates this insatiable appetite for sexual sin. It's an unquenchable hunger that just leads to deeper and darker and darker things. For today's generation, sex is something you find on an app. It's an itch to scratch. It's, it's not a profound spiritual connection. It's recreational. It's just a need. It's something on a checklist. And man, if we ever make any technological advance, have you noticed the first thing our culture asks is how can we use this for sexual immorality? This is the first thing we do with any new technology. What can we do with this with porn? That's our first question. So the days of Noah were clearly marked by rampant violence, sexual immorality, and the rejection of God's design for humanity. But perhaps most sobering of all, Jesus chose to highlight the days of Noah and the days of Lot because in both of these cases, write this down, the people were stubbornly unrepentant. The people were stubbornly unrepentant. Noah preached for 100 years. Their world, their society was collapsing around them. The evidence was everywhere. Take the example of porn. It, most people know young men who are addicted to it can't actually have sex with a real woman now. But, but that's no reason to stop. 
We've got a medication for that. The evidence is everywhere that the direction they were headed in Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Noah and in our own day, evidence is everywhere that it's ruining us. It's ruining families, marriage, sex, culture, everything. But we won't repent. We won't repent. The men in Sodom kept trying to rape the angels who were visiting Lot and his family even after the angels struck them with blindness. They didn't stop. Their hard-heartedness over their sin, their refusal to give up their wickedness made them blind to the fact that their world was about to be judged by God. In Romans 1, back half of Romans 1, I encourage you to read it, Paul lays out the devastating truth that when we reject God, when we reject his ways, God will allow us to do so. God will say, go for it. And the more we dig in our heels and refuse to acknowledge God, the more we deceive ourselves and the more God allows us to be deceived. It's terrifying. Back half of Romans 1 scares me to death because it's God saying, the more you reject me, the more deceived you become till you get to the point where down is up and up is down and you think you're brilliant and you're a fool. You're a fool. You can't even figure out the moral equivalent of one plus one anymore. And yet it's what's happening so far this year. I'll give you one example. So far in the year 2016, there have been 1,274 Islamic attacks in 50 countries in which 11,774 people have been killed and 14,303 injured. Yet we are told over and over again that Islam's a religion of peace and this is a tiny minority misrepresenting their faith. For a tiny minority, they sure get around. 50 countries, 11,000 killed, halfway through the year. And yet within the same 24 hours of the Nice attacks, it was revealed that if elected, Hillary Clinton plans on immigrating one million Muslims into the United States in the first quarter. Do you know what percentage of Muslim immigrants into Canada and the United States believe in Sharia law? It's over 85%. Over 85% of Muslim immigrants to North America believe that you should be beating your wife if she doesn't do what you want or have sex with you when she wants. You should be chopping hands off thieves and stoning homosexuals to death. That's what they believe. That's what Sharia law is. There are not different views on Sharia. When we say Sharia, everyone's speaking about the same thing. The Western world's lost its mind. Lost its mind. And that's not hyperbole. And Romans 1 tells us what it looks like when the world determines it's going to collectively reject God, save a small minority of believers. The world looks like ours. We can't see straight. We can't think straight. We can't tell the truth from a lie because we prefer the lie to the truth. Because of what Jesus says in his word about the days leading up to the rapture being like the days of Lot and Noah, I have to draw the conclusion that as it was in both of those examples, there's no revival coming to a country. God's plan is to judge the earth just as it was to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, just as it was to judge the earth in the flood. Those are the examples Jesus gives. There's no great revival in the days of Noah. Our hope though, as we approach the rapture, is not that the countries are gonna turn to Jesus. Our hope is that unlike the days of Lot, unlike the days of Noah, 
there will be an opportunity after the rapture for unbelievers to turn to Jesus. There will be an opportunity. The judgment will be poured out over a period of years and people will have a chance to turn to the Lord. It's going to be the greatest revival of individuals the world has ever seen after the rapture. You know why? Because those people that you spoke to about Jesus, those people you gave pocket gospels to, those people you gave CDs to and said, please listen to this. When millions and millions of people disappear from the earth, they're going to remember. I remember what Steve said about this. I remember what Mary told me about this. They're going to remember and they're gonna turn to the Lord like never before. But if you've read Revelation, you know even then, countries aren't gonna turn to the Lord. Countries are gonna turn against the Lord. So our hope is not in nations turning around. Our hope is in individual people coming to know Jesus. Canada is not gonna turn to Jesus. America is not gonna turn to Jesus. But your family members might. Your coworkers might. Your classmate might. Pour into them and pray into that. Pray into that. While all this is fascinating, we're still left with the question, what is happening today that could be paralleled to the Nephilim in the days of Noah? So violence, we get that. Sexual immorality, we get that. But the strange Nephilim business, what's the parallel to our day in that regard? Well, the whole Nephilim incident revolves two key things taking place. Make a note of this. Firstly, people reject God's design for human life. They're rejecting God's design for human life. They threw God's design of one man and one woman out the window and pursued something different. And why would they intermarry with fallen angels? Well, because their goal was, this is a chance for us to improve our species, to become superhuman, something more than human. Their plan was to improve God's design. The second thing, make a note of this, is we see people reject God's provision for the problem of sin and death. This is huge. They reject God's provision for the problem of sin and death. You see, God agrees that the human species is broken. God agrees death is a problem that needs solving, and it's a problem that he solved for us at great expense. The Father sent the Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, the sins that caused death to enter the world, the sins that caused entropy and decay to enter the world, and God's plan for the problem of death is that we would be made new in eternity with him, that we'd be made perfect. Did you know that today there's a field of science and technology dedicated to solving the problems of sin and death? The field is called transhumanism. And the stated goal of transhumanism is taking control of the next step of man's evolution. Using the fields of genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics, the goal of transhumanism is to end human decay and live forever. And we are so much closer to this than anybody realizes. Here's a truth you can safely assume. The advances you read about in media, in the areas of technology and genetics, you can safely assume that governments and corporations are doing things in secret far ahead of that. If you really believe that our most cutting edge technology is being talked about in newspapers, then you don't understand how the military industrial complex works. There is a technology arms race always going on between Russia, the United States, and China because we are on the verge of some breakthroughs in technology that will immediately render every country that doesn't possess it 
irrelevant. And so there's this massive race towards these technologies in the military industrial complex. The simple process works like this. Someone has to have an arm amputated. And so we create the first wooden arm for them, first wooden arm. Next step in the evolution of prosthetics is a hinged arm. There's a hinge over here. So when you sit at a table, you can pull the hinge and do this. Then we move on perhaps to some sort of hand that can grip. Maybe it has metal in it so you can bend the fingers and make it hold something, a beer or something like that. And then I guess do that. And then we move on to some sort of servos, some sort of robotics. Perhaps you can actually move the hand by pushing buttons on the other hand, something like that. Well, things have actually advanced so much that now we've moved on to interfacing prosthetics with human nerves. So they'll create an arm that has robotics in it and it will actually have wires that go into the muscles at the top of the arm and respond to pulses in those nerves making the arm move on command. Then we've moved on to the field now of artificial skin so that now the leading prosthetics can crush a soda can but also pick up an egg, crack it on the side of a bowl and put it in. That's the level of detail we're talking about. We are on the cusp of creating prosthetic human arms that are as good as the original. Now you've reached an event horizon in the field of technology. Because once you create an arm that is as good as the original, what is the next step? It's an arm that's better than the original. See, why would you make an arm that's only as good as the original when it could be three times stronger? And you very quickly reach the point where if you have an atheistic or agnostic worldview in which there is no God, no creator that needs to be honored by how you treat your body, you can't come up with a logical defense for not voluntarily amputating your own arm and upgrading it. The only reason to not do that is respect and reverence towards a creator if you believe in one. If you don't, there's not a logical reason to keep your inferior limbs. And this exact scenario is playing out in every part of the human physiology. We're not just going to invent hearts that will last a person their whole lifetime, we're going to invent hearts that will never block. And we're gonna reach the point where most doctors will recommend middle-aged men simply make an appointment and have their human heart removed in favor of a mechanical one. Perhaps if you have a risk of heart disease, they'll do this operation at 21. And if you don't believe in a creator, why wouldn't you? There's no reason not to. Fascinating, fascinating issue playing out here. The great challenge of transhumanism is the question, what makes us human? Are we the sum total of our memories and experiences? And what does it mean now that we've reached the point where we can actually implant artificial memories into people? What does that mean if we're the sum total of our memories and experiences? The ultimate goal of transhumanism is to isolate the human consciousness because they are most intrigued by this question, what makes us human? How can we isolate human consciousness? If it is our mind, how can we upload our mind into a machine and in so doing isolate human consciousness? Because if you can isolate human consciousness, then the body becomes nothing more than a host and you can simply transfer your consciousness between hosts and in so doing you have achieved immortality and you will live forever. 
Here's why this is such a serious issue. Because it is human beings saying, we will solve the curse of sin. We will solve the problem of death. Instead of looking to Jesus, it's saying we'll save ourselves. It's spitting in the face of God as our creator and it's spitting in the face of Jesus as our savior. Do you remember what God said after Adam and Eve sinned, after death and sin had entered the world? He said this, it's on your outlines. Then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. So God removed Adam and Eve from the garden because if they had eaten from the tree of life after sinning, they would have lived forever in their fallen sinful state. And God knew that that would be an unspeakable tragedy. He said, for you to live forever in a world full of sin and brokenness and tragedy, that would be awful. That would be the worst thing that could happen. From God's perspective, it's grace that our lives are relatively short because from heaven's perspective, nobody would want to live here very long when you could be with the Lord in heaven. Transhumanism says, but that's exactly what we want. We don't need God. We are God. We are God. I would suggest to you that transhumanism is thrusting us closer and closer and closer to a line that God will not allow us to cross. We're doing things and pursuing things that are so blasphemous and insulting to God, he simply will not allow it to continue forever. Secondly, just as a point of interest, there may be another parallel to the days of Noah because just as the Nephilim were a group of people who were irreversibly damned, belonging to Satan, there's another group mentioned in the Bible who will emerge after the rapture and will become irreversibly damned. Some of you may know this. It's the group of people who choose to voluntarily take the mark of the beast, who choose to align themselves with that person we know as Antichrist. The Bible says once they take that mark, it's irreversible. And for that reason, it causes me to speculate it's not gonna be a chip in your hand. It's not gonna be a tattoo. Both of those can be removed. It's probably gonna be something genetic in nature, which is irreversible. And again, just remember, Nobody is gonna end up taking the mark of the beast by accident. They're gonna know full well what they're doing. It's gonna be a conscious choice that may very well be another parallel to Genesis 6. Well, understanding the Nephilim of Genesis 6 makes the flood make so much more sense. It changes the reason for the flood completely and it explains why the situation was not repairable. There had to be a cleansing, a reset of the human gene pool. If you believe the only reason for the flood was that people were wicked, you have to explain to me why God didn't do something similar any of the other times that followed when man was easily just as wicked for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because remember, God didn't say he'd never destroy the earth again. He said he'd never again destroy it with a flood. Read Revelation. He's got all kinds of options at his disposal if he wants to destroy the world. But not only do Nephilim make more sense of the flood, but they also make more sense of one of the issues Christians have most trouble with in the Old Testament. Perhaps you've heard this, if God is so good and loving, why does he order the ethnic cleansing of entire people groups in the Old Testament? And most Christians are like, um, um, his ways are not our ways. It's the Christian theological cop out, right? Many believers have a hard time understanding it, 
and explaining it. If you trace the bloodlines, the lineage, and the evidence, you'll find that each of the specific tribes God names is infected with Nephilim DNA. Remember, Genesis says there were giants on the earth in those days and after. You see, God doesn't command Israel to wipe out every tribe they come across, only specific certain tribes, the tribes with Nephilim DNA. As we read in Genesis 6, there were Nephilim on the earth after the flood too. So how did they get there? Well, there's two possibilities. First possibility is that one of the sons of one of Noah's wives had that in her genetics. That's one thing that's possible. The other possibility is simply that Satan sent some fallen angels to try and repeat the plan again. I think that's more likely because when the Lord prophesied to Abraham that his children and their children's children would receive the promised land forever, you know what that did for Satan? Satan was able to say, ah, Now I know that God's plan is to send a redeemer through the line of Abraham. Not only that, now I know where the line of Abraham is going to end up geographically. Satan knows I don't need to focus my efforts in the Far East or in Africa. I know that they're going to be in this part of the Middle East. That's the land God has given to them. And so Satan uses that knowledge. And while Israel is in captivity as slaves in Egypt for 400 years, Satan goes to work turning the promised land into an absolute minefield. He ends up with all these Canaanite tribes that have giants that have a great chance to defeat Israel in battle, to intimidate them out of even trying. Remember that actually worked? The people listened to the report of the 10 spies who said there were giants and they didn't go into the promised land. They ended up wandering the wilderness for 40 years as a consequence of not trusting God. He puts these tribes in there that have bizarre sexual practices to seduce the men of Israel into moral sin. Satan uses those 400 years to turn the promised land into an absolute moral and military and cultural minefield. All these tribes that have Nephilim DNA are all in the land that Israel is told to go to. Coincidence? I think not. And so when you understand the Nephilim, you don't have to twist and contort your way into making some logically suspect explanation for why whole tribes were wiped out by Israel. Although I do recognize it's not like telling that to your friend is an easier answer to give. Well, here's the thing. Angels came to earth and had sex with women and produced demigods. I get it, but at least you can know the answer. Corrupt DNA makes a lot more sense for the reason for ethnic cleansing. It explains why they're not savable and why they had to be eliminated. And by the way, if you ever doubt just how corrupted these peoples were, I encourage you to do your own research into the lifestyles and religious practices of the Canaanites. They are so unspeakably evil, I literally cannot tell you about them in church. They're evil beyond description. So go read them and you cannot escape the conclusion that these people are infected with something demonic. Well, since we're already there, shall we have some fun and dive into a little bit of speculation? Everything I've shared so far has been uh, pretty much fact. It's what we believe, it's the direct thing. But I wanna just for the sake of fun to give you something to talk about over lunch today, as if we didn't have enough already, share a couple of speculations. And I I want to be clear, these are speculations. These are not facts. Uh, I share these just to expand your thinking and to let you know that the Bible touches on some things that 
you may have never considered before. As we mentioned earlier, whenever you find a mythology that's common across cultures that didn't communicate with one another, you can safely assume that the origins of that mythology or folklore lie in reality. So just as every ancient culture has a mythology of a great flood, so too does every ancient culture have a mythology of beings coming from the sky, bringing with them secrets of things like architecture, astronomy, math, engineering, metallurgy, and herbalism. Did you know that you cannot fit a single sheet of paper between the blocks that are used to build the pyramids in Giza? Can't put a sheet of paper between them. That's how perfect they are made. That's how well they're engineered. Did you know we cannot replicate that feat with all our technology today? And here's what's fascinating. There's no ascent to the pyramids that they built in Egypt. It's not like they started by building really crappy pyramids and then they slowly got better and better and better. There's just this explosion of incredible architecture. We see the same thing in the Maya and the Incan cultures as well. There's not an ascent in architecture, there's a massive leap to building things that defy description for the age that they're in. And in a lot of these places, there's this quantum leap in technology and then it flatlines. Nothing happens. You realize that technology in the Middle Ages is really not that far ahead of where it was 1000 BC. People are generally still living in uh, mud huts, out in villages. They've clustered in some cities, but they're still using wagons, they're still using primitive tools. Technology hasn't really advanced that much. And so all over the world, we see these cultures that have explosions of ancient knowledge. And another thing you find in these cultures is you find rampant paganism. And it's always awkward because I watch historians on secular TV shows and they want to talk about the incredible technology that these cultures have and how advanced they are. And then they talk about the fact that, yeah, but they also sacrificed their babies to the moon. And they always have these horrific, bizarre religious practices. It's never something like to celebrate the harvest moon, they would gather flowers from the field and have a bonfire. It's always like they cut the beating heart out of a living human being and then threw it down the stairs of their temple. There's something horrific like that. You always find rampant paganism and you always find bizarre sexual practices as part of their worship. The very MO of the fallen angels who visit the earth in the days of Noah. And these cultures tend to just disappear into history. They just vanish most likely because they crumble under the weight of their own evil. They literally can't sustain a culture, a society, because the evil gets so bad in the culture. There are some Bible scholars who suggest, you can see the point I'm making, that these visitors from the sky, spoken of by ancient cultures, were in fact fallen angels. As to, there are Bible scholars who suggest that the phenomenon of extraterrestrial activity is also the work of fallen angels. You know what I find fascinating? I find it fascinating that in my lifetime, belief in extraterrestrials has gone from being the domain of crazy people who wear tinfoil hats all the way to today where it is, are you so arrogant to believe that we're alone in the universe? That's the view today, isn't it? The overwhelming majority of people believe in extraterrestrial life. Every time NASA sends a probe to a new planet, it's sort of like, oh, we didn't find extraterrestrial life. There's the expectation that it's just a matter of when, not a matter of if. The viewpoint has completely changed. And I would suggest that there's clearly something going on. 
You know, people keep seeing mysterious things. People keep reporting encounters by the thousands across the world, across the decades. And doing these things doesn't bring most of these people notoriety or fame or money. Like they don't have a compelling reason to lie, most of these people. Do you know that the single most common aspect of an alien abduction is a sexual experience? It's the old classic joke, were you probed? Sexual deviance is the number one defining characteristic of reported alien abductions. Very similar again to fallen angel activity. We know from scripture that angels as beings can move back and forth between the spiritual dimension and our own dimension. We know that they can interact with us physically. In the Bible we're shown angels leading people by the hand, eating and drinking, engaging in physical combat and other physical behaviors. And then of course Genesis 6. So when people report seeing things that break the laws of our physical universe, such as things in the sky making right angle turns at high rates of speed, there are beings in the Bible that are capable of doing such thing. They're angels. For all these reasons, there's some who believe that the phenomenon of aliens is quite simply fallen angel activity. And part of the reason for the mainstream acceptance of the idea that we're not alone in the universe is the massive media onslaught we've experienced over the last several decades of TV shows, movies, comics, you name it, about aliens. And one interesting possibility is that there may be a long game being played here by Satan. So being a student of scripture himself, Satan knows there's a rapture coming. He doesn't know when it is. But he's listening to every word Jesus says about the signs of the time. So it would be strategically advantageous for Satan to have an explanation ready to go when the rapture happens, lest everybody turn to Jesus and go, oh my gosh, it's the rapture. So if you're Satan, the rapture happens, millions of people leave the face of the earth, you don't want people turning to Jesus. So you've gotta have an alternative explanation ready to go. There's a good chance that that alternative explanation will be a mass alien abduction. And if you just stop and think about it, let me ask you this. Of all the people you know who don't believe in Jesus, that you know personally, which explanation are they more likely to believe right now if the rapture happened? That Jesus Christ has raptured his church or that there was a mass alien abduction? I would bet money, the overwhelming majority of people in your life who don't know the Lord would believe in an alien abduction before they would believe in the rapture of the church. I mean, there's no question about that. So that's a very, very interesting possibility. Very, very interesting possibility. And the last thing I'm gonna leave you with is this. This is another theory sort of thrown out there, just a speculation. But when you go through the scriptures, you find that fallen angels and demons don't actually seem to be the same thing. Fallen angels have a body. They have a physiology to them. Demons don't have a body, which is why they seek possession of either an animal like the pigs in the one miracle Jesus performs or a human being if they're given permission to enter. So what are demons? Well, one possibility that's been proposed is that demons are the disembodied souls of Nephilim. In other words, Nephilim have souls but they're not souls made in the image of God. Their souls are pre-damned because Jesus didn't die for the Nephilim, he died for humans, his creation. So when the flood happens, all these Nephilim die physical deaths, losing their physical bodies. But their souls immediately belong to Satan and those souls may be what we call demons, what we call demons. Can you hang with me like eight more minutes? Eight more minutes, okay, here's what we're gonna do. 
And I share all that stuff just because we're there and it's interesting and we're taking one day to get all the wacky stuff in one message. I'm not spreading this out across multiple messages, okay? We're gonna do all the wacky stuff in one message and we can get back to our normal thing. If you're visiting today for the first time, by the way, this is very, very unusual. This is just a, a week that we wanted to take and talk about something, because let me be honest, I don't know any other church that's gonna talk about this stuff. And I share this because, I, as I said last week, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by things like paranormal phenomena extraterrestrial activity, because I just said, there's something going on. Will somebody explain to me what the heck it is? And all I got from the, the Christian community was it's evil, stay away from it. And that just wasn't good enough for me. I wanted answers. And so I share this so that you will understand that as believers, we should be the authority on the supernatural. People should come to us with questions about the supernatural because the Bible tells us all about it. Well, I wanna let you know this. There's really only one other view on Genesis 6 and fallen angels and Nephilim and stuff like that. The majority of churches don't believe what I just taught. They believe something called the Sethite view. There are people who've been all the way through Bible college and seminary and have never been taught what we've talked about today. They've been taught the Sethite view. And let me explain it to you. The Sethite view came about because people were like, that's just crazy. Angels came to earth? I, I can't believe that. I need something that sounds a little less crazy to tell my friends. Here's what you need to know. For the first four centuries of the church, the angel incursion view, the view I've shared, was the only view in the church. For the first four centuries. In the fifth century, people began to mock it in the academic establishment where you would expect them to. Secular professors and thinkers and scientists began to mock this ridiculous Christian belief that angels had come to the earth. The worship of angels had also heavily infiltrated the earth. Remember, it's the fifth century. Constantine has risen to power in the fourth century and he has married the church to the state of Rome. So you have all these pagan Roman practices that have been fused with the church. You have the politics of Rome that has been fused with the church and among that paganism has come the worship of angels heavily into the church because of the church of Rome. And so they're saying this view isn't going to work. You can't be preaching that angels came and did this bad sort of stuff even if they are fallen angels. We want to worship angels so you got to get rid of this theology. So Celsus and a guy named Julian the Apostate, which just tells you everything you need to know about his character. I don't think it was on his business card, but that's how he's known now throughout history, Julian the Apostate. They were vocal leaders in attacking Christianity for this view on Genesis 6. And then a guy named Julius Africanus brought forth this Sethite view as a solution, as an explanation. Cyril of Alexandria got behind it, and then Augustine, some of you may recognize the name Augustine, embraced the view and took hold in Christian academia and prevailed into the Middle Ages all the way into our time today. So this is what the Sethite view says. It says, after Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4, the family line of Cain turned ungodly and rebellious. However, Cain's other brother, Seth, who was born later, spawned a family line that remained godly and faithful. So you've got the line of Cain that's wicked and the line of Seth that's faithful. And they say the phrase sons of God in Genesis 2 refers to leadership in the family line of Seth and the phrase daughters of men refers to the family line of Cain. So the Sethite view says that the lines of Cain and the lines of Seth 
were supposed to stay separate, but they intermarried, and that's what God was so upset about. Now let's completely shred that entire theory right here. Firstly, there's no reason to interpret sons of God as referring to Sethite men and daughters of men as referring to Canaanite women. Every other time the Hebrew word used for sons of God appears in the Old Testament, it's used to describe angels and never believers. As a term, it's only used for those directly created by God, never humans born from other humans. This is why in Luke's genealogy, only Adam is called a son of God because only Adam was a direct creation of God. You're not a direct creation of God. You came from woman, Adam came from God. There's nothing in Genesis 6, 1 and 2 that points to the phrase daughters of men referring only to the daughters of Cain. This is what it says. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Clearly it's talking about all men. If the text wanted to contrast the sons of Seth with the daughters of Cain, why doesn't it just say so? Why doesn't it just say that? There's also an intentional distinction being made between the human and the non-human of God, of men. Next, the line of Cain was not necessarily all ungodly. Based on the names of Cain's children, many of them feature the name of God. And so there's reason to suspect some of them were faithful. Likewise, the line of Seth is not necessarily all godly. Enoch was the only person raptured before the flood. Only Noah, his three sons, and their three wives, and Noah's wife, eight people were preserved through the flood. The text implies that they were the only ones distinct on the earth. There's no indication that Noah's wives came from the line of Seth. Well, not only that, but Enosh, who is Seth's son, shows up in Genesis 4.26. Genesis 4.26 in your Bible probably says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's a complete mistranslation. If you look up the original meaning, it should read, then men began to profane the name of the Lord. And the ringleader of that activity is Enosh, one of the sons of Seth. Most compelling of all, if the line of Seth was faithful, why did they perish in the flood? Why'd they die in the flood? The text is primarily about the cause of the flood. Why would the sons of Seth and daughters of Cain have anything to do with that? National and racial distinctions don't even exist on the earth until Genesis 11. Prior to that, we find no instruction from God for anyone to keep separate. And Genesis 6.12 makes it clear that all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. The Sethite view doesn't explain why their resulting offspring are called Nephilim. It doesn't explain why their offspring were giants. A fact the text seems to put forth as the primary reason for the flood. In contrast, Genesis 6-9 shows Noah and his family as the only ones who were genetically pure. Another problem is that the Nephilim were only male. There were no women of renown. That doesn't make sense if it's just humans procreating with humans. The Sethite view doesn't explain who the spirits in prison are that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3. It doesn't explain the specific offense that caused the angels to be imprisoned in 2 Peter 4. It doesn't explain the proper domain that the angels left in Jude 6 through 7 or why God compares it to the sexual immorality practiced and strange flesh pursued in Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only that, 
But in Jude 6, you might remember, it says that these angels left their proper domain. That word, proper domain, is the Greek word okaterion. It only appears one other place in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians where it says, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation. It's the word okaterion, which is from heaven. So in Jude 6, these angels, their great crime is that they took off the thing that we desire to put on. So that resurrected eternal body, they took it off, we desire to put it on. The Sethite view doesn't explain why God judged the earth with a flood but never again judged the whole earth despite generations that were clearly as wicked. It doesn't explain why there are Nephilim on the earth after the flood and it doesn't explain the ethnic cleansing carried out by Israel in the promised land. The view that we've shared today was the view upheld by traditional rabbinical sources. The book of Enoch, which is from around 200 BC, which is not scriptural, but does give us insight into what the rabbis believed at the time. Additionally, the translators of the Septuagint believed this view. The Septuagint was a translation of the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. Took place about 300 years before the ministry of Christ. They took the very best translators from Jerusalem to Alexandria and they spent 15 years translating the scriptures. Greek is a very precise language and the language chosen by the translators of the Septuagint proves that they believed in the view that we've shared today. Josephus, the famous historian, believed the view that we shared as did all of the early church fathers, Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Amrose, Julian, all of them. It's also held by many respected modern scholars. It's the viewpoint that harmonizes with everything else that the Bible says. And if you don't want to hold to that view, you have to solve all of the problems that I just shared right here. It is fantastic by definition. It sounds unbelievable, but it gives some incredible explanation and insight into why the flood happened, why the ethnic cleansing happened in the promised land, and I think it also gives additional insight into some very strange occurrences that take place through history. Now just as the Lord would not allow the days of Noah or the days of Lot to continue unabated, the Bible tells us God's gonna judge the earth soon. But like Lot and like Noah, praise God, the Lord has a plan for our deliverance. We're gonna be raptured to be with him before judgment is poured out on the earth. The world around us may think we're out of our minds. There may be fellow believers who would say, come on guys, you can't really believe this is gonna happen. But Jesus said, Guys, remember Lot, remember Noah. Everyone around them didn't see it coming. It's coming. Live your life accordingly. Live ready for heaven. Live ready for heaven. Let me encourage you with this. The greatest revival the world has ever seen is gonna take place after the rapture. It's gonna be incredible. When you share with people now and you get a hard heart, you encounter a closed door, don't think that that's the end of the story because you don't know. God might work in their life through a tragedy before the rapture or he might use the rapture and the tragedies that come after it to turn them to himself. You are never ever sowing or working in vain when you share Jesus with somebody. That's never wasted. That's never wasted, so stay focused on praying for people. Don't let it cause you to lose hope knowing that countries are not gonna turn to Jesus. 
You should be full of hope knowing that God's solution is a new heaven and a new earth and he's coming for his church. But we got work to do until he comes back. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you that you trusted us enough to share with us things that are absolutely mind-blowing. Things that at face value seem hard to take, but Lord, we go all the way back to Genesis 1-1 and we remember that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Lord, you are in control of all things and your word has never failed us, it's never lied to us. Thank you for being honest with us about history and about the future and about your plans for the future. We love you for trusting us with that information, Lord. Father, as we look around us at a, at a world that is falling apart, Lord, we recognize that our only hope is in your son, Jesus, and in his name, and in the future that he has secured for all who will call upon his name. So Lord, we place our hope in your hands again, and we pray that you would help us to extend that hope to individuals that you've put in our lives. May they see a peace in us. May they see a hope in us. May they see a strength in us, Lord, that is not shaken by what's happening in the world around us, but that comes from you. Comes from knowing that our citizenship is in heaven, not here on the earth. Father, we pray in a, in a world that doesn't want to repent, that doesn't want to turn to you, that you will help us to stay bold. You will help us to keep sharing because we don't know what you're gonna do with that in the days to come. We're living in extraordinary times. Thank you for revealing the truth to us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.